You're listening to a teaching from Vintage Church LA. This week, we're hearing from Associate Pastor Ash Meany. Leo Tolstoy, the author of War and Peace, also wrote a book called A Confession, in which he tells his life story. He describes how he rejected Christianity as a child and then went on through life looking for answers to his deep hunger and meaning for purpose. First of all, he thought, maybe pleasure is the answer, just having a great time. So he entered the social world of Moscow and St. Petersburg, drinking heavily, sleeping round, gambling, living a wild life, but found it didn't satisfy. We know nothing about that in LA, do we? So he thought maybe money's the answer. He'd inherited a large estate and started to make lots of money out of his books and found no matter how much money it had, it just didn't satisfy. Then he thought... Well, maybe the answer is success, fame, and importance. He wrote three of the greatest novels in world literature, but still it didn't satisfy him. He thought maybe the answer is to give my family the best possible life. He married in 1862 and had a happy family of 13 children. Yeah, that's what I thought, 13 children. I mean, I barely survived my three. (laughs) No offense, kids, if you listen to this. He, he said he'd achieved all his ambitions, was surrounded by what he considered to be success and happiness, yet one question drove him to the verge of suicide. What meaning has my life that the inevitability of death does not destroy? He tried to search in every field of science and philosophy to come up with the answer. And the only answer he could come up with was another question. Why do I live? Why do I live? In the infinity of space and the infinity of time, infinitely small particles mature with infinite complexity. And he didn't find that very satisfying. He started to look around at his contemporaries and he found that many of them were avoiding the same issue and they were driven by exactly the same questions. And eventually, eventually, he finally found the answer he was searching for in the peasant people of Russia. It was their simple faith in God. Their simple faith in God. And over 150 years or so later in LA, it would seem that nothing much has changed, has it? I've been living here for three years, and it does seem to be the narrative that so many come to this city looking for that deep satisfaction for their souls. Now, biblical scholars refer to chapter 6 of John's Gospel as the bread of life discourse, the bread of life discourse. And if you haven't spent time soaking in this chapter, can I encourage you to? It starts with an encounter of Jesus miraculously feeding 5,000 people by multiplying five small loaves of bread and two small fish. Then in an attempt to get away from the crowd, he does just a small miracle of walking on the water across the lake to get to the other side. And when the same crowd finally catch up with him and his disciples, he begins a dialogue to try to reveal the deeper meaning of hunger and bread and tell them who he is, to reveal his identity as the Son of God. 
And it's these two encounters involving bread that I want to focus on this morning. Chapter 6 opens with Jesus crossing over the far side of the lake of Tiberias. And John tells us, a large crowd of people gathered around him. Not uncommon for Jesus at this time in his ministry. They'd followed him because they'd seen his miraculous healings and it's not long before a critical need becomes obvious. The crowd have come so far that they're hungry and they're miles from any source of food. And we pick up this story in chapter 6, verses 5 to 6, where it says, When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Now, just in case you haven't noticed, when Jesus asks a question, it's always loaded. He never asks a question because he's not sure of the answer. He asks the questions for our benefit. The disciples see the impossibility of the situation and how they respond to this question will reveal whether or not they're learning anything about the nature of who Jesus is. So it's a critical moment for them. And Philip, having done his calculations and thinking he's rather smart, comes up with this response. It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. And now at this point, I just want to say, I pause. I'm always so, so grateful and get reassured by how the disciples respond to Jesus. Because it's so obvious, so often, they completely miss the point. We should find that reassuring. I find it a relief because I too often miss the point of what Jesus is saying to me. Many years ago, in the honeymoon period of my faith, in a land far, far, far away known as Devon in the UK, I was on a summer holiday. It was cloudy and raining. No surprise there. And I was camping and I was taking a walk along an estuary and I had my headphones and I put my headphones in and I was worshipping the Lord. And in the honeymoon of my faith, I had this incredible moment of just this sort of epiphany of the, of the Lord. I was filled with his presence. I was worshipping. I was saying, thank you, Lord. And I distinctly thought Jesus was inviting me to walk on water. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> hey, wait for it. And so with eyes closed and arms outstretched, I slowly started to walk into the sea. And I took quite a few steps And I thought, Lord, I'm walking on the water towards you. And it wasn't until I realized I was wearing Timberland boots, so they're quite high. And it wasn't until the freezing cold ocean poured down into my boots that I realized I wasn't walking on the water at all. Completely misunderstood what Jesus was saying. When I got back to the camp and I was emptying my boots, they were like, Ash, what happened? I was just like, freak wave, freak wave. (laughs) Wouldn't believe it, freak wave. Just How often? Do we misunderstand who Jesus really is and what he's doing in our lives? So Andrew then chimes in with this. Well, there's a boy here with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? 
And this little bit of faith on Andrew's part was all Jesus needed. As the disciples are about to discover, negotiating with the impossible circumstances is a process designed by God for our benefit in growth in faith. I'm going to say that again. Negotiating with impossible circumstances is a process designed by God. It's a God trap. It's a process designed by God to grow our muscle of faith in him. It's a basic spiritual principle that the less we have to achieve what God asks of us, the more potential there is in seeing his provision. If it seems we have far too little to do with what we feel God's calling us to do, it could just be you are in exactly the right place. This is the biblical narrative. So many of our biblical heroes responded to what God was asking of them with these words. Are you kidding me? Well, that's my paraphrase. I, there's no way I can do this. Jesus calls us to rise above the seemingly impossible circumstances to touch the limitless provision of God by faith. And so often on our journey of faith, God steps in when our abilities end. We are meant to be living with a vulnerable dependence upon God as a living reality in our journey with him. The circumstances we face do not have the final say on reality because faith in Jesus places us in a different reality, one that's unseen and pregnant with the possibility of provision from a God who satisfies the hunger of a whole nation by feeding them manna in the wilderness and who fed 5,000 people with five small loaves and two fish. This is the God we serve. A.W. Tozer explains faith like this. Faith is not a conclusion you reach. It's a journey you live. This is the journey that Jesus invites us into. Faith is an ongoing living experience. It's not a one-off moment. And this is how God grows our muscle of faith in our journey with him. So, responding to the impossible circumstances, he asks the people to sit down and taking the bread and fish, he gives thanks and then gives it to his disciples to distribute, feeding all 5,000 people with 12 baskets left over. You know this story. You were probably raised on this story in Sunday school. Now, in the healing of the sick and raising of the dead, Something was restored that already existed. But here we see an absolute creation. I just want to make this point. It's an absolute creation. Food was called into existence, which did not exist before. Jesus takes substance. He gives thanks and then multiplies this substance. But as miraculous as this encounter is, It's also packed with a much deeper symbolic meaning, as so many of the miracles are. And if our focus is only to focus on the miraculous, we miss the deeper reality and meaning of what's going on. The most important of which was the timing. The miracle occurs just before the Passover. And for those that don't know what the Passover is, it was a springtime festival that celebrated the deliverance of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. And it's so important not to miss this detail. 
because it's one of the biggest celebrations in the Jewish calendar. In fact, it was the highlight of their spiritual history. They celebrated God as their deliverer and provider of manna from heaven to the Israelites in the wilderness. This was their story. This was their God who delivered them and fed them over and over and over again with manna from heaven in the wilderness. It was a part of their identity. It was a part of who they were as a nation. And not only did they look back to God for his provision, but they also looked forward to when God would send another prophet like Moses to bring deliverance to them. Are you beginning to get a glimpse on what Jesus is doing? Little did they know that the very prophet they were waiting for, the one who would satisfy their deepest cravings and longings, was in their midst, right in front of them. Then after the feeding of the 5,000, the crowd wanted to make Jesus king of Israel by force, thinking he'd deliver them from Roman occupation. So he walks on water to reach the city of Capernaum on the other side of the lake to get away. But the crowds all pile in boats, cross over the lake and in search of Jesus. And then when they find him, a dialogue begins between the crowd and Jesus. They begin asking questions. How did he do it? What's he doing? What are the meanings of the miracles? And we pick up this conversation in verse 30 to 31, when the crowd asks this. What sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. They'd heard Jesus teach. They'd seen him do miraculous healings. The very reason they were there was that they saw him do miraculous healings. They saw him multiply food miraculously, but they were still not able to comprehend who he was, who this man was right in front of their very eyes. Again, so reassuring to know this. The crowd following Jesus wants literal bread to satisfy their physical hunger. But they're looking for the wrong bread in the wrong place. Their focus is on provision of food to satisfy their physical hunger. But Jesus is trying to help them see that their spiritual need, that there's a deeper hunger, that there's a, there's a hole in their soul that needs feeding. And this is far more important than simply physical need. Their focus was on the physical while his focus was on the eternal. And you'll remember that this is the same thing that happened to the woman at the well in chapter 4. We've, we've looked at this story over the last couple of weeks more than once. And you'll remember in the dialogue with the woman at the well, he offers her living water. He's in a conversation. He says, I've got water. And if you drink this water, you'll never be thirsty. And what does she say in reply? She says this. Great, give me some of this water so that I don't have to keep coming back to the well. She thinks he's talking about this. And he's not. He's talking about living water. He's talking about a deep, deep water that will satisfy her deep longing and hunger and thirst. He's offering living water to satisfy her deeper spiritual thirst. And isn't this what we do? I mean, it's what I do. Maybe I'm the only one. 
I'm often so focused on my physical needs, on the world of the culture around me, that it blinds me from seeing who Jesus really is and what he's actually doing in my life. We live in a city that's always tempting us to spend money on that which is not bread and labor on that which does not satisfy. If I was to ask for a show of hands in a room this size, I wonder how many of us are satisfied with what we're doing. And this city has the capacity to sort of bend us out of shape and disorder our desires and cause us to chase after food that doesn't satisfy our soul, but actually distort reality and distort identity and distort who we are and certainly to distort who Jesus is. How often do we pray for something to change or, or a need to be met and then we get distracted with all that's going on in our lives out there and we forget what we prayed for? Anyone do this? I do it so often. And it's not until months later, you know, in hindsight, you sort of look over your shoulder and you sort of go, huh, I, I remember praying for that thing I needed. I remember praying for that place in me to be healed. I remember praying for those circumstances to change. And we, we somehow take the credit for it, thinking we did it. And then we look back over our shoulder and realize just very gently, much deeper, much slower, maybe not in the timing we want, maybe not in the way we want, God has actually done it. So often my vision of God is reduced down to my material needs. And I completely miss the bigger reality of who he is and the fullness of life he's inviting me into. Our faith, our journey with him, is an invitation to one of the most amazing adventures we've been created for. So in an attempt to lift them out of their food-dominated thinking to the bigger picture of who he is and the deeper meaning of bread, he spells it out for them in verses 32 to 35, these incredible words. Very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, Always give us this bread. Then Jesus declares the most astounding declaration. I am the bread of life. We don't have time to pick up the significance of the I am. If you haven't looked at that, have a look at that. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus is declaring that he's the new Moses. This is profound. That in him, the new exodus has begun. That the manna he offers is not going to feed them physically, but it's going to deliver them from the ultimate enemy, which is death. The searching is over. The longing that drives humanity to work and sweat and strive and perform for security, identity, meaning and purpose is over because satisfaction can be found in Christ. St. Augustine, 
observed that every single person has a God-shaped vacuum in his soul. And Blaise Pascal, the French philosopher, said, There is a God-shaped emptiness within the heart of every person which cannot be filled by any other created thing, but only by God the Creator, made known through Jesus Christ. That deep fear, that hunger and compulsion for something to fill the hole in our soul can finally be satisfied with Him. I still remember the day in June of 1990, having spent all of my childhood and my teens up to my early 20s, chasing after one thing after another, one cocktail of treasure, pleasure, and and leisure after another, trying all sorts of things, yet completely ending up exhausted and deeply unsatisfied until the bread of life walked into my apartment room in Paris and I tasted of his life. And something came over me that completely began to heal and transform and change the trajectory. If you'd asked me then, or told me then I was going to end up being a pastor, I think I would have cried, laughed, or punched you in the face. (laughs) But God has the final laugh, because here I am. So when Jesus takes the five loaves and gives thanks and multiplies them, only one other miracle resembles this moment, and it's when he turns water to wine. These two miracles belong to a class by themselves. One reminds us of his blood shed for us, and the other points to his body broken for us. Do you see the deeper significance on what's going on behind the miracle? It just it, it, it takes the miracle and just blows its meaning out to so much more. These two miracles belong to a class by themselves. You see, he didn't come to provide the elements for the Passover, but to be the Passover meal himself. I am the bread of life. I am the manna that God is going to feed the whole world with. And this invitation to us is to satisfy our deeper fulfillment and hunger in him, to continuously come back to him, to continuously feed on the bread of life. We have to be doing this, to be living in a culture like LA, who is constantly bombarding us with alternative ways to satisfy our hunger and thirst. We have to come back to him. We have to eat of his living bread. We have to reorient our desires, our thinking, our temptations back to him. Because, of course, when we do, we then become living bread for those around us that don't know him. This is the way we get to play a role in feeding the hungry and thirsty in LA and beyond with the living bread. But we can't if we don't do that. In a moment, we're going to take communion together. And as we do that, we're going to be remembering his body broken. We're going to be remembering his blood shed. And I know, I know it's hard in a sort of communion lunchable 
to kind of get religious and sacred about communion when it's like this. But I, I want us not to do this out of habit or routine. I want us to come. And I want us to realign ourselves, to realize that this invitation to, his, to the crowds and his disciples is the same invitation to us today. So why don't we take a moment to stand? Thanks for joining us for another week. We'd love to connect with you at one of our gatherings or online at vintagechurchla.com.